We're in our study on the Bible lists and different lists and topics we've been going down through uh, from Harold Wilmington's uh, book of Bible lists. And I have um, gone down through these, and there's some that are more relevant than others, obviously, but they're all interesting. And we're still in the section on uh, Jesus Christ. That's the topic. And and we're looking at, uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at his humanity. Last week, his deity and the 37 verses that we de- deal with the deity of Christ. And then uh, today, we're looking at 14 results of Christ's resurrection. Uh, and I want to just talk on some of those things. I don't have a lot of other verses outside of what Wilmington provided. We can kind of bounce around a little bit. But as I was uh, putting those in, um, I wanted to stick to this. But... Uh, the first one, and number one on that list of 14, is, um, is uh, it guarantees our justification. And we're going to read this verse, and we'll open in a word of prayer. Paul writes here in Romans chapter 4, verse 24, But also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And let's pray. Lord, we're grateful, grateful for your hand of goodness, grateful for your love toward us. And Lord, we're grateful for the resurrection of Christ, which is so central to our, our doctrine and so central to the faith. And without it, Lord, there is no hope. And we just thank you tonight for this and what the Bible teaches. In Jesus' name, amen. There are a number of verses, but this one in particular just deals with this idea because Jesus was raised from the dead um, he is able to save us from our sins. And as it says here, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus from our, our, our Lord from the dead. And in that passage of Romans chapter 4, and what is that, verse 24, uh, I just want to read the context around it real quickly here. It says, and it says, now it is written in verse 23, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But also for us, and that's the verse we read, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And so that word justification is used at the end of that. I Sorry, I didn't get that verse in, that next one. But um, because Jesus has been raised up from the dead, he guarantees that aspect of our salvation, which is the declaration of righteousness or the imputation of righteousness. That's what that word imputed means. It is a twofold thing where he took our sin. It was imputed onto him in that way. He became sin for us, but he imputed righteousness on our account or, or, or did that. And then uh, the guarantee of that is his resurrection. So that's important. It guarantees our justification. Second thing, it guarantees present-day power and strength. Present-day power and strength. Have you ever thought about that? That the resurrection of Christ has a very real practical purpose in our lives, in our Christian walk. And that's found in the teachings, again, of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. And In verse 18, Paul writes here, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us, who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he, what? 
raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What you have here is the connection of the power that presently works in us. And that power of Christ on us gives us a number of different things. What are some of the ways the power of God works in our lives? Let me ask that question and get your thinking caps on. What are some of the ways? I'm not saying necessarily specific only to you, but think of it from a theological perspective. What what does the power of God do in your life right now? Keeps us. Keeps us us from what? From sin and to what? Keeps us to eternal life, doesn't it? Yeah, both ways. He is powerful. And the guarantee of that is his resurrection. Um, That's one area of his power. Any other ways that his power is working in our lives? There's the, what's, yeah, the power of the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in using the instrument, right, to reach others. And have you ever had those times and conversations where you go and you're talking to somebody and he gives you the right words to say and you know it's just from him? Or that morning you're reading in a certain passage in scripture and there's a verse that sticks out and, and you're thinking about that and the very next thing that comes your way is, is a chance to share that verse, and it's what is needed. I've had those opportunities numerous times. And I, I attribute them to the power of the Holy Spirit. Feeding us and illuminating us. And then helping us with that message. Any other ways? Power that is evidenced. Any, through the word of God. Yep. But in our lives practically. Like what other ways do we, we, can we count on the power of Christ? Think of in the practical walk that you might you know experience something we do we gather for times of prayer and the power of his resurrection guarantees also that that he is able to because he's seated in the heavenly places right he's able to intercede on our behalf and be our mediator the only mediator and that you know is part of that power anyways there's a lot of those i I throw that out just kind of get our thinking caps on a little bit because sometimes we read a verse like that and i don't know about you but i can just skip over it and read the next one and say okay i've done my bible reading for the day and but every now and again stop and pause to think about that and then ask those questions why is it that i have the power to witness to people why is it that god has the power to to um well illuminate the the sinner and also draw them to himself all that is guaranteed based on the resurrection of christ in all that he goes on to say far above all principality and power and might and dominion and think about that there's a lot of powerful people in our world today Uh, and i say powerful because they yield power in certain realms it might be the political realm might be in the business realm but there's one who's above all that and that's the lord in the context of this his resurrection is the evidence and guarantee of that power. There isn't any other one that can do that. I don't care how powerful you are, a politician or whatever, someday they're going to have your funeral, you know. And if you don't know the Lord, well, that's it, you know. They're, they're headed out to a Christless eternity in hell, and the power of sin has won. He goes on to say this, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave uh, him to be head over all things to the church. We're going to read about this a little bit later. And it's another point, but it's the lordship over his church. 
that he has the authority as head of the church based on the resurrection that happened with Christ. And then it goes on, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, that's a continuation there of those. It's just right after that. And you, he made alive. How come he made us alive? Or how did he make us alive? Because he himself was raised over victorious over sin and death. And that's how he made us alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And you have here the power, which is the resurrected power, um, over the practice of sin in our past. And in our present, too, as well. But that is part of that. It guarantees that strength and the present-day power um, to overcome sin. And how? Because he overcame it. And then it goes on to say, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, uh, which, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. How are we regenerated and brought to spiritual awakening and the renewing of our mind? All of that that hinges on that. It's all because we're made alive together in Christ or with Christ. By grace you have been saved and then raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a a present position that we um, have you know basically occupied through Christ I say that because I'm not presently in heaven but he is and he secures the spot for me and I'm glad for that and that's based on his resurrection that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus that's the future aspect of grace right someday when we're in heaven and you can you won't remember what I say I hope but I hope you remember what he says but you will experience in its fullness the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory, all of those things. And that is secured for us based on the resurrection of Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And again, that's that present aspect of the strength and power as a witness and as a worker. Number three, it guarantees fruitful labor. Fruitful labor. Um, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's the, big, it's the big chapter on the resurrection. That whole chapter deals with that topic. And Paul lays out these systematic sort of arguments of uh, because of the resurrection, this and this and this. But down near the end of that, verse 58, he says, therefore, and again, that word therefore is there because of all the things that were preceding it. It says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, you know, it's not really worth doing anything because eventually we're just going to die, you know? Or I've had people, you know, make some kind of comment like that. It, in other words, um, 
it doesn't really matter because we're going to die. You know, and that's sort of fatalistic look of things. And for the natural man, that is his outlook. I mean, he looks at this life as it. And why go out there and toil more than you need to? Why go and do difficult things? Why, why try to live for the Lord? I mean, the natural man, the sinful man, looks at that and says, that's just vain, that's futile. Why would I do that? Because, I mean, I'm just going to die. But if there's something beyond death, it's all worth it. In the context here, Paul's writing to a, a church, the Corinthians, and, and to us by the fact that it's included in the scripture, uh, the word of God, and canonized. And he's saying we should be abounding in the work of the Lord, always abounding. Why? Because of the resurrection and the hope that that brings. This life is worth working for him and struggling for him and doing the daily things like like a relationship requires, right? A, a praying daily, getting in the word, witnessing, um, living for Christ, living for Jesus, right? And all of that takes effort and it's worth it because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that gives us hope that this isn't it. This isn't it. First Corinthians fifteen forty two. Um and, and by the way, it guarantees our own resurrection. I don't think I threw that verse in there, but in Second Corinthians 4.14, it says this, Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. And I, that's number four. I don't know why that verse isn't in there. I must not have uh, squeezed it in there. But that, not only does his resurrection guarantee a fruitful labor, but it guarantees our own resurrection. So if somebody says, how do you know you're going to be raised from the dead? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. And there's lots of evidences that he was raised from the dead. There's, there's all kinds of these uh, accounts in scripture and uh, as well as the actions of the early church and the apostles and others who went out. And I also experienced practically in my life. He's changed my whole direction and my mind. He's renewed it by his resurrection. Anyways... 1 Corinthians 15.42, which is what's before us, and that's number five. It will exchange, or yeah, it will exchange bodily corruption for incorruption. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. And that's true in the sense that even at the conception of life in the womb, we have within us, in our own DNA and everything else, the, the very things that will eventually affect us in old age as our genes undo. You know, it's part of the curse of sin. That's the theological side of it. There, I think there's also a, a scientific explanation that explains the curse, and it's in our genes. It really is. Eventually, we unravel, <laughs> and something will, will cause, you know, a disease to come. Or, I mean, there's other ways of dying, for sure, you know, lots of other ways. But, you know, some cancer will arise, something like that. And our body literally is sown in corruption. It's also sown in the ground in corruption. There's a picture there of the burying of a body. And when that body goes in the ground, it isn't going to, I don't care how good the undertaker is, um, it, it's going to decay and it's going to be that way until the upper taker comes, right? And raises it up. Um, and the body is sown in corruption, but it will be raised in incorruption. 
perfect. And only God can do that. And you say, well, how, what's the guarantee of that? The resurrection of Jesus. Verse 43, number 6. It will, be, it will exchange dishonor for glory. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And though that verse right there is number 6 and number 7. It will exchange dishonor for glory. And, and I think of that because in um, so often... Uh, as you as you go through that process of the body failing you, you know, um, you lose the honor that you had. I guess if you look at it, you know, it's one thing when you're in your youth and you're strong and everything's going well and healthy and the mind is sharp, and it's another thing when it's all sort of failing. And that is the progression of age and. It's a reality, and it's what most people face in this world, really. And yet, as it goes in dishonor, because that's kind of what it's pictured there, death is like that, it will be raised in glory. Think of the most glorious thing, and that's how the body will be raised up. And then the next point is, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. At best, we're just weak vessels. And yet, someday that demonstrated power of God will be seen through the resurrection of our bodies. Verse 44, it will exchange a material body for a spiritual body. That's what it says. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, I don't know all what that what entails exactly other than to say, that the resurrected body will not be like we have now. Uh, I do believe that it will be identifiable. How do I know that? Again, based on the resurrected Christ. When he, was, when he entered into the midst of his disciples in that locked upper room, they, they knew who it was. They did. Some didn't know who he was as their eyes were held, like Luke 24 talks about those two on the road to Emmaus. But people could see him. They could handle him, Right? When Thomas doubts and says, um, I, you know, I won't believe unless I see, the, you know, see him, basically. And he says, touch me and see. Uh, and you find Thomas believing. And Jesus could have been touched. He could have been uh, felt in the resurrected body. Now, they weren't to cling to him as some did, right? Because he, he was ascending to heaven. He was going to. That wasn't the idea, but that doesn't mean that he couldn't be touched in the sense that he didn't possess some kind of, some element, you know, to him in that way. And yet he could walk into an, uh, an upper room with doors that were locked. And if our body is going to be like unto his, I think about that sometimes. I think, is it going to be such that we would be able to walk right into, uh, you know, through a brick wall or something like that and be able to uh, eat a meal? Um, there is a marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. I don't think there's any need for locked doors. There aren't any locked doors in heaven. There's open gates. Whosoever come, may come, you know, believes may come. And, you know, you look at all those things, but there is some aspect of the physical realm today that we're bound by. Someday the resurrected body will be a spiritual body, and yet it will also possess... Material. I, I don't know how to explain that other than to say we'll experience it. That's what the Bible says. 
It emphasizes, number nine, it emphasizes the deity of Christ. In other words, the resurrection of Christ emphasizes the fact that he's God. Because only God, who is um, powerful enough to speak things into existence, is also powerful enough to allow that matter to be raised back up and have life breathed back into it. And when I think of that, because we don't have that power, do we? When someone dies and they're truly dead, not just, you know, um, as they talk about clinical death and biological death, it's possible your heart can stop and someone could revive you after a certain amount of time. And uh, that varies in circumstance and age and all that. But uh, when death occurs, it, it occurs. There's nobody out there, not the most advanced surgeons or cardiologists or uh, anybody that can go and bring life back to the body, except God, the one who first breathed life into the soil, essentially, right? Gathered the dust of the earth, breathed life into it, and Adam became a living soul. And he's able to do that again with all the whatever parts that, if, if we go back to the dust of the earth, he's able to gather that right back up and make a new body. And I'm glad for that. And that's Acts chapter 10, verse 40. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. And here we see uh, the fact that God raised up Jesus. And that's what's the term. But yet we see elsewhere in scripture where Jesus says he will raise himself up. Right In John chapter 3 he says that. And we see in Romans 8 where it's the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. And again we have this statement. Him God raised up from uh, on the third day and showed him openly the deity of Christ Romans 1 4 also we read this earlier but concerning I guess we weren't in Romans 1 no concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh in other words he possessed flesh and in doing so by the way he could die and that is at the heart of the gospel isn't it and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So again, you have a picture here of of Jesus being more than just the offspring of David, but he's indeed that which is declared the Son of God. And, And the term, as I've said earlier, and you see the reaction in the scriptures when that claim was made of Jesus, the Jews wanted to kill him, the the Pharisees. They wanted to kill him because they believed that was making him equal with God. He was God. And in that, indeed, that claim was made. But we see the resurrection of the dead at the middle of that as well. Uh, In number 10, it is the springboard of Christ's exaltation. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And here is uh, this distinguishing fact about Jesus that sets him apart among Israel, in that he is the prince who is the one who's been raised up from the dead. He's Messiah, and Peter's making that in his sermon there. In Philippians chapter 2, same thing. 
the exaltation of Christ. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of the things in heaven, of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And again, the picture there in the resurrection of Christ, and that precedes that in that context. Uh, Number 11, and we were in this passage already, and this is that one. It marks the beginning of his lordship over the church. The resurrection. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his power, his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and... Every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, and put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. And it says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fact that he is Lord over his church is the position is uh, secured and gained by his resurrection. After all, if he had died and death claimed him, he could not be much... Of a, of a groom, could he, or could not be much of a head of a church if he's dead. And that's why I believe Jesus Christ is the only head of the church, by the way. Uh, no one else should be that head. All right. And then number 12, it warns a sinner of the coming judgment day. The resurrection of Jesus warns the sinner of the coming resur- uh, judgment day. When Paul is in Athens in Acts 17, he's preaching there to the Athenians, and he presents Jesus, uh, and he presents, well, he backs up before uh, the gospel of, in, and Jesus, and he begins with creation, and you read his sermon there as he's preaching to the Athenians and revealing to them the one unknown God that they were worshiping ignorantly. And he says in verse 30 of Acts 17, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all this to all by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection assures us that there will be also a judgment that comes. And Paul mentions that here. Now, some stumbled at that as soon as they mentioned the resurrection. Because that was totally outside the Greek worldview of their gods. Um, They worshipped idols. And the legends and myths surrounding their gods were, were weak at best and flawed at best. And here's Jesus, the one who's raised from the dead. And that was a stumbling block for some. Others wanted to hear more, though. But nevertheless, it, is, it warns the sinner of the coming judgment day. And then number 13, the resurrection forever seals the doom of Satan. He's our great enemy, isn't he? The enemy of all that is good, enemy of God. And Satan's doom is secured by the resurrection of Christ. And I often think of it from the perspective of Satan at the cross when 
Jesus hung on the cross and died there, all hell would have rejoiced, saying, he's finally gone. We've done it. We've killed Messiah. And you think of all the times historically, things that were revealed in the Bible, where where Satan has attempted to cut off the line of the Messiah. And I believe at the heart of anti-Semitism in our world today is the spirit of Satan at work. And I do believe that very much so. It's interesting in the United States that 60% of hate crimes are committed against Jews, which represent about 2.5% of our population. And you say, well, why? I mean... Is because Satan hates the Jew. Because out of the Jewish people, Messiah would come. And he tried to do that from the very beginning, right? Having one brother murder another brother. And then all the way down through, there was always something attacking that line. And yet, God's plan stands firm. But surely at the cross, when Jesus would bleed out and die and give up his spirit, Satan would have rejoiced. But three days later, he rose again, and he was victorious over sin and death and Satan. Matthew, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That's the humanity of Christ. He entered into the Hebrew people. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And I like this. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Much of what we do in this life, and if you look at people's worldviews and all of that, which grips them at a heart level, it really is about dealing with the universal problem of death and how to answer it and how to try to get, get a you know, avoid it, all of that. And Jesus goes and hits it head on, doesn't he? And he gets to the heart of the matter. It was through his death and ultimately his resurrection over death that he defeats the devil. Now, the devil is still very active and still he is still um, working his work within the confines of the will of God. Someday his doom is sure. And that's Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that is the ultimate outcome for Satan. And that will be yet future, but uh, it is secured by the resurrection of Christ. And then lastly... This is one that the resurrection transfers the focus on a day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. And that's uh, 1 Corinthians, actually Acts 20 verse 7. Uh, we'll start there. Now it's interesting here because this, this is an argument in our world, right? There are Christians that say, well, we should be worshiping on the Sabbath, right? Well, the Sabbath was the last day of the week, the seventh day of the week. And yes, you can worship on the Sabbath day. That's not, there's nothing preventing you from that. But when you look at the pattern in Scripture, it was at the first day of the week, right? Which is on our calendar, Sunday. Um, but the resurrection day, right? Voskresenia, right? In Russian, the resurrection day. Um, and 
that is uh, the day when Christ rose from that, and the church historically has met on that day. And you think about one day, the Sabbath was a, a day to commemorate the creation and the God of creation, and it was a day of rest, not because God had to rest, but because we do. And Jews would celebrate Sabbath or, you know, participate in the Shabbat. They still do. Observant Jews do. But there's a better day. See, I often look at that. You look at the Sabbath. What did it cost God to create the world? Nothing more than his spoken word. That's what it cost him. But to pay for our sin and to give us the hope through the resurrection and defeat the devil and all that, it cost him his very life. And that's honored on the first day of the week in the early church. And it says that here. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. Now that was the time when they met to fellowship and to, um, to preach and to worship. Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So Paul's preaching. You thought I went long-winded. Um, that context, he preaches to midnight. Finally, a young man falls out of a window and, you know, he's taken up for dead, Eutychus. And uh, I had a preacher once preach a message on that and warned us all that we shouldn't fall asleep in church because we could fall over dead, you know. Well, that wasn't, I think, the emphasis on that story. But Eutychus was spared as, as Paul revived him there miraculously. But, but the point of that was that he was preaching on that first day and he went right through that whole day, you know. Wow. Anyways. That's one aspect. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And Paul's referring to the time the church meets, the first day of the week. And so for those that say that we're worshiping on the wrong day, I think they go against the pattern of scripture that is seen in that. And again, it's God can accept your worship on any day or evening or any time. Um, he he does absolutely but historically we see that and it makes sense it was the resurrection Sunday that Jesus when he when he is raised and I also think the picture in that evidences to us the day indeed which Jesus was raised from the dead because there is some out there that say that Jesus wasn't raised on that Sunday Um, he was raised on a different day and I would just say, well, you know, the Bible clearly indicates that that's when the church, the early church, those that knew him, his disciples, they were with him when they knew that that was the day in which he rose. So, uh, and that has been right down through the centuries for that. So anyways, those are 14 reasons um, for, or results, I should say, of Christ's resurrection. There's really many more as well, but those are the 14 that, that Wilmington put in his list for that let's pray lord we're grateful we're grateful for the resurrection of our savior jesus christ lord we rest in that tonight we thank you for the hope that it brings thank you for the power that it brings in our life not an earthly power that corrupts a power that fades but rather lord an everlasting power that's centered in him we thank you he'll get the glory in all things And we commit again our world to you and our people around us, our families. And, oh, Lord, in these days, may we live as Christians who believe in the resurrection. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.